Let's do some intro to Back to the Future here. So Back to the Future is a 1985 American science fiction film directed by Robert Zemeckis and written by Zemeckis and Bob Gale, ultimately known as The Two Bobs. It stars Michael J. Fox as teenager Marty McFly, who accidentally travels back in time to 1955, where he meets his future parents and becomes his mother's romantic interest. Christopher Lloyd portrays Doc Brown, the eccentric scientist and inventor of the time-traveling DeLorean, who helps Marty repair history and return back to 1985. Back to the Future was released on July 3rd, 1985. It grossed over $381 million worldwide, becoming the highest-grossing film in 1985. If you want to hear more box office info, go back to our teaser trailer that came out on Monday. Check that out. It also won a Hugo Award for Best Dramatic Presentation, the Saturn Award for Best Science Fiction Film, and the Academy Award for Best Sound Effects Editing. In 2007, the Library of Congress selected it for preservation in the National Film Registry, and in 2008, the American Film Institute Special AFI 10, AFI's 10 Top 10 designated it as the 10th best science fiction film. I'm going to have to see that list. What are the other nine? Uh, we can discuss that in a minute. Uh, the film began the franchise, including two sequels, Back to the Future Part 2, Back to the Future Part 3, an animated series, a theme park ride, and several video games. JD, let's start with the... Uh, the top 10 list. What other nine movies are better than Back to the Future? So this is all-time sci-fi. I guess, yeah. Do you, do you have the list popped up, or are we just spitballing here? I will get the list right now. What do you think is on the list? What would you rank higher? See, I would be curious to get a temperature gauge of what they're calling and considering sci-fi, because that can be a very subjective term. Right. So, I mean, to an extent, is Jaws a sci-fi movie? It is not on the list. Here's the top ten right here. Number one, 2001, A Space Odyssey. Two, Star Wars, Episode Four: A New Hope. Three, E.T., The Extraterrestrial. Four, A Clockwork Orange. Five, The Day the Earth Stood Still. Six, Blade Runner. Seven, Alien. Eight, Terminator 2, Judgment Day. 9, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, and then 10, Back to the Future. You know, we've talked and I've thrown my hate towards Blade Runner in the past, but really? That's a that's sketchy right there. Now, if you want to put Star Wars ahead of it, I'm okay with that. I, yeah, don't, I, don't... I don't think E.T. is better than Back to the Future. Uh, I know Alien's not better. There's no way. It's got to be two or three on this list. I don't, I don't even know that I would consider Star Wars a sci-fi movie in the same way that a lot of these other movies are. Right. And I know it is, and I, I'm not trying to make a point of contention about it, but when you think of sci-fi movies, I'm thinking of like 12 Monkeys. I'm not thinking of A Clockwork Orange, which Clockwork Orange falls in my top 10 favorite movies ever, so no hate to it. I know there's elements of science and fiction to it, but I don't know that I would call it a sci-fi movie. Hey, which Stanley Kubrick movie do you like better, A Clockwork Orange or the uh, fake moon landing? <laughs> oh, no, he, he did a great job with NASA on that fake moon landing. Are you tinfoiled hat on that one? Do you, do you buy any of that? I am skeptical is all hell. Okay. 
And again, it comes down to believing half of what you see and none of what you hear. I didn't see any of it. I don't know. All I know is what people tell me about it. There's no yeah. verification. And then his work, it's its a great conspiracy. Look it up. I want to say Ranker has a great article about it. Yes, I'm, t- I'm tinfoil hat about most things, Kyle. Come on. I've, yeah, I've been down that wormhole. I'm also skeptical hippo eyes here. I'm not, I'm not fully buying it, but uh, also I don't want to take away from what those guys accomplished if they did do it, which is like the greatest thing in human history. Nobody else has walked the moon, right? So exactly. The first ones it, to do it. Exactly. Nobody else has ever done it. We sent people to the moon and said, no, that's cool. We're good. <laughs> We're done. Yeah. You know, one thing, though, just just to think about this for a second, like technology wise, like where were we at with computers and phones and the time that we landed on the moon? Where are we at now? Why have we not gone back? Why Seems- are there not colonies on the moon? Why are we why are we waiting for Elon Musk to send us to Uranus? He doesn't hurry up. I'm going to show him where his Uranus is. Boom. How about that? Roasted. Boom. Roasted. Take that, Elon Musky. <laughs> Let's do some more Back to the Future. I mean, were you a fan at all of the animated series? Have you ever seen that? I remember the animated series. I can't say that I remember watching it religiously, but I remember it existing. Yeah, it's actually on the newest Blu-ray that they put out. They put, I think, the first season on there, or at least a couple episodes. So I've watched them. They're pretty good. Um, What about the theme? I love when we can do this. What about the theme park ride at Universal? That was my favorite ride attraction at Universal Studios. I was so pissed when they got rid of it. I feel like Spielberg should have put his foot down on that one because he put his foot down on E.T. and was like, if you're taking that out of the out of the park, I you're not doing anything else with my name on it ever again. So they they redid E.T. and updated it. Why didn't they do that with Back to the Future? I don't understand. Did you know that there's a Back to the Future, the musical? I've yeah, I've heard that's been talked about. Is that actually a thing, though? I'm. Just, I'm just scrolling through Back to the Future things. So I, I wanted to talk about the video games, and I made my way to the musical instead. <laughs> uh, I, I know that there were talks. I've heard interviews with Bob Gale talking about the musical, so I know it's a thing. I don't know if it's out yet, though. No, it's that would be a that would be not. a musical that I would go to. Okay, all right, yeah. No, apparently they've been trying to work it since 2015, and there, mm-hmm. there's been no updates. As of this calendar year, but I, I had not heard that. That was out of my uh, out of my ear reach. Okay, let's talk about the video game. I remember having the Sega. I believe it's Back to the Future Three, the Sega game. Yes. Do you remember that one? I do, but I more so remember the ones for Nintendo. I have that on my NES Classic. Actually, we can play that if you want. But yeah, that's that's a pretty fun game too. That one's hard. Yeah, I'm, I have not conquered it. I've only played it a few times. Uh, I've just mostly kind of beaten up on Super Mario Brothers 3 and Punch-Out. Uh, but, of course. Or some Contra. But yeah, I mean, that's that was a good game, though. I feel like there should be more of the video games for them. So many things you can do there. Well, they released one, what, probably almost in 2010. It was I, I think it was the Telltale Games. Okay. Was is that yeah, just Telltale Games and they did a Jurassic Park game as well, and they were really cool, 
but really sort of juvenile. Okay. Like it was almost like point and click. It was like playing a game on DOS. It was just boring. I think I made it like 15 minutes into the Jurassic Park game, which is one of my Eesh. favorite movies ever. Yeah. And I was just like, okay, this is dumb. Okay. All right. Let's talk a little bit about the filming of Back to the Future. Writer and producer Bob Gale conceived Back to the Future after he visited his parents in St. St. Louis, Missouri, after the release of Used Cars. Really good movie. I'd like to do that at some point. Searching through their basement, Gale found his father's high school yearbook and discovered he was the president of his graduating class. Gale had not known the president of his own graduating class and wondered whether he would have been friends with his own father if they had went to high school together. When he returned back to California, Gale told director Robert Zemeckis about the idea and Zemeckis immediately thought of a mother claiming she would never kiss a boy at school. In fact, she had been promiscuous, promiscuous, and the two took the project to Columbia Pictures and made a development deal for a script in September 1980. Uh, J.D., what do you think about the script idea for Back to the Future? I love the conception of it. For when it came from, from those, just those little simple ideas into what it evolved into this masterpiece of a movie. Do you think that you would have been friends with your father in high school? That's a good question. I, and that's why I think I like this movie so much because I can kind of relate to it. I think we would have been friends, but also at the same time, like he liked sports, but he wasn't, he wasn't playing them in high school. And that's all I did. So I don't, I don't know if we would have been friends or not. Cause I kind of had my click of kids that I ran around with and, when I wasn't doing that, I was, you know, in a band. So I was around the kids that played music. So he didn't do any of that stuff. So I don't know. Would have been tough. Yeah. You're going to ask me. I didn't want to bring up that subject. <laughs> I was going to make a joke about how he doesn't talk to me now. Why would he talk to me then? <laughs> what? So we'll, we'll stay away from the, the dad talk. But I mean, what about your mom? Like, do you feel like you would have been friends with her? Can you imagine her in high school? I'm we have some some family urban legends that I really don't think my mom actually went to high school. We think she dropped out pretty early in the process. So chances are no, because she wouldn't have been there. (laughs) So the first draft of Back to the Future was finished in February of 1981 and presented to Columbia, who put the film in turnaround. They thought it was a really nice, cute, warm film, but not sexual enough, Gail said. They suggested that we take it to Disney, but we decided to see if any other major studios wanted a piece of us. Every major film studio rejected the script for the next four years, while Back to the Future went through two more drafts. During the 1980s, popular teen comedies like Fast Time at Ridgemont High, Porky's were all risque, adult aimed, so the script was rejected for being too light. And Gail and Zemeckis finally pitched Back to the Future to Disney, but they felt the story of a mother falling in love with her son was not appropriate. They just can't win with this script, huh? Yeah, I love to hear the the trials that they went through and the eventual triumphs because that's, you know, audience, anybody that's looking to get into screenwriting or if it's something and it's a passion of yours, like, these are the true stories. There's no overnight success for a movie. There's years and years of, pain and progress and pain. So those of you that are like me and Kyle and you're, you're writing and you're passionate about creating worlds, don't give up because 
they didn't. And Kyle will tell you what happened next. Yeah. So what we go into filming here and I'm going to save some of the stuff um, that we'll talk about in a second here, but filming wrapped after a hundred days on April 20th, 1985. And the film was delayed from May to August, but after a highly positive screen testing, they chose to uh, move the release date up to July 3rd, having all their editors um, working around the clock 24 hours on rotation to uh, actually go from the ending of the film on April 20th to nine weeks later being in theater. How crazy is that? And especially yeah. knowing that it's not digital film. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point. Now, we're going to talk a lot more about the details of production, casting, Eric Stoltz, everything. But that's going to be in our Casing Gains episode. So that episode should be up right now if you're listening to this. JD, give our audience a little sneak peek into the Casing Gains interview. This is an episode, guys and gals, that you're not going to want to miss. It's our first official interview. We have Casing Gaines, who authored a book basically going into the history and trivia and behind the scenes, all things back to the future. And we get into the shit with him and we get to the nitty gritty and he, he tells some stuff that you're not going to just read haphazardly online. Like he's got the inside track. So if you guys want to hear some stories that are going to impress your friends next time you watch back to the future, this is your episode. And then also we rock too. So listen to our other episodes. (laughs) J.D., what do you think about the Alan Silvestri score and the other songs throughout the film? The music in this movie is just bomb as hell. I mean, what? Props nonstop to Huey Lewis. Yep. It's the power of love. I've seen Huey Lewis live in concert twice now, and he rocks the house. I would see him anytime that somebody's ever like, hey, do you want to go see Huey Lewis? Yup, let's do it. I actually have not, and I need to, to change that. So I, I should go check his website and see if he's coming by. Remedy that shit. He puts on a killer show. Okay. So obviously, Power of Love, great song. Now, in one of our previous episodes, I know you were talking about a, uh, a, a track of his that was controversial and something about maybe like Ghostbusters. I can't remember what you said. Yeah, I I had read a story and, you know, maybe at this point it needs to be further fact checked. But um, I I had always heard the urban legend of the production behind Ghostbusters that tried to get Huey Lewis to do the theme song for Ghostbusters, like the the main track. And for whatever reason, whether it be contractual or he just didn't have the time, um, they couldn't get him to do it. And so they went ahead and just sort of ripped off the Ghostbusters song from what they wanted Huey Lewis to do. <laughs> and Huey Lewis sues. And okay. they, they knew he was going to sue, so they just settled the lawsuit and wound up paying him less through the lawsuit than they would have had to pay him if he had done the song that Ray Parker did. Okay, so I'm actually fact-checking for you as we speak. So... Ray Parker was signed by the producers of Ghostbusters to develop the song, the film's title song. Later that year, Huey Lewis and the News sued Parker, citing the similarities between the Ghostbusters song and their earlier hit, I Want a New Drug. I'm going to play that right now. (laughs) 
I'm going to stop playing it there so we don't get sued also by Huey Lewis. So I think I got to keep those clips at like 30 seconds. But JD, could you hear that at all? No, I, I could hear it in my head. Very, very similar. They definitely have a great case. <laughs> with, with that being said, being somebody that plays guitar, I mean, there's only so many chords you can play. It's very clear that that was ripped off of that and that he just changed the words and sped it up a little bit. It's in a different time, but I, I just lost a little bit of respect for, uh, for Ray Parker. You know, it is what it is, and it's not necessarily his fault, I think, in this case. I mean, it seems like it's more of the higher-up people. When you're an artist and you're getting money thrown at you, right? it's money. Ray Parker made a living off of that, so good for him. Now, let's talk about Elvin... Alan Silvestri's score. So the score doesn't actually begin until the 18 minute mark into the movie. And it comes when the DeLorean machine is revealed for the first time. Uh, and then just some, some background into this. So Spielberg initially had reservations about hiring Silvestri because he was unimpressed with his score for romancing the stone, which he did with the two bobs. But during a preview screening, which the film was accompanied by a temporary track that was only used part of Silvestri's score. Spielberg commented to Robert Zemeckis that a particular grand cue was the sort of music the film needed, unaware that it was indeed one of Silvestri's cues. So <laughs> how cool is that? Good for him, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely good for him because the music and the score kind of make, make Back to the Future in a lot of regards and a lot of the, like that memory that... Um, viewers have comes from hearing that iconic music right at that exact part that you were talking about. Yep. Yeah. So I, I I'm kind of picturing Spielberg, like leaning over. He's like, you know, uh, Silvestri, he, uh, kind of sucked in romancing the stone. I mean, this guy right here, whoever did this, this is the stuff we need. Oh, that's Silvestri. Oh, okay. Well, sometimes you're just wrong. Let's do some interesting facts. So those were kind of my first two. I've got a bunch of these, um, so the rights to the film and the sequels are all owned by the Bobs. In a 2015 interview, Zemeckis maintained that no reboot or remake of the franchise would ever be authorized during his or Gail's lifetime. How about that? Ooh-wee. What's up with that? Yeah. No, no, I think that's, I think that's fabulous. Like it's, and I was just discussing this with someone the other day. It's like, the way that Hollywood is just spitting out anything that they can get their hands on and dig their nails into and say, this is an existing property. Let's just throw it out to the market. And for them to be holding strong, like I'm, I mean, that's part of the reason why I'm super excited, but also super fearful about Disney getting their claws into Fox Yeah, and what they're just going to spit out for, you know, now owning the rights to just, and we talked about this before, but like, I'm so expecting a new Home Alone movie any day now. As soon as that deal is penned and done, that's probably going to be at the top of their remake list. It, it, my only hope would be if they do that, that they say, Macaulay Culkin, how much, how many zeros need to be on this check? You tell us because we're not doing it without you. That's the only way that I would ever buy into a Home Alone sequel is if he is now the dad and that that's part of the next discussion. 
Oh, come on. That's so pandering, though, isn't it? Hmm. You would want him to be the dad and for him to make the mistake that ruined his childhood and turned him into the jigsaw killer. <laughs> that's true. That I like that little spinoff video. That's on YouTube somewhere. Just search for it. Writers Bob Gale and Robert Zemeckis actually received a fan letter from John DeLorean after the film's release, thanking them for immortalizing his car. Um, I know we talk a lot about the car in the Casey Gaines interview, but uh, how neat is that to get a, uh, a letter from the founder of DeLorean? Yeah, they, they did more for DeLorean than DeLorean did for DeLorean. That's true. And by all accounts, I've, I've actually sat in a, my, I almost, I almost had a DeLorean. That's kind of the sucky part of the story is my, uh, my aunt had told me I could have her dad's DeLorean and then she passed away and my uncle said, nah, nah I'm selling it and keeping the money. And I was like, no, let me give you money, please. <laughs> let me give you a payment plan. Uh, I think he got five grand for it. I could probably sell that thing for 35 grand today. So that's a bummer. Or you could be driving in style. Or that's exactly what I would be doing because I would not sell it. Actually, you could probably make at least 35 grand a year just driving up to comic conventions and parking outside and charging five bucks a photo. All right. Well, now that's making me even more mad. Uh, The script was rejected 44 times before it was finally greenlit. JD, as somebody that writes scripts, I know we just talked about this a few minutes ago. What do you think about that? 44 times. Before they found the right person. Yeah, I would be curious to what those 44 people and companies and houses were. Because it wasn't all just the big boys. They they probably had to climb up and down yeah. the ladder to do that. And I mean, I've got projects that I've been pitching for five, six, seven years now. So, you know, 44 times, that's that, that, that happens, man. And there's other writers out there that, you know, they toil. And they'll never know success. And to, to get any level of success is fantastic. So any time that you fail, it's, it's a learning experience. Christopher Lloyd stated that he always wanted to do one more movie in which Marty and Doc Brown travel back to, or sorry, with, in which Marty and Doc time travel back to ancient Rome. I don't like that idea at all. Thank God Christopher Lloyd doesn't write scripts. J.D., what do you think about that? I would rather them time travel back to 1985 to undo the time traveling that they did. Yeah. Can you I imagine would... how crazy that would be of them at present time traveling back to 1985 and interacting with them at that time? Maybe, I don't know. But yeah, well, I, I mean, like that, my that's idea. actually a cool story because... You could put Michael J. Fox's Parkinson's as part of that. You know, this is what caused my Parkinson's. I say, Doc, we go back to 1985 and we ax the whole thing from ever happening. And then Doc's like, hey, good idea. And then they jump into the Lorian and they go back to 1985. At the London Comic-Con 2015, Michael J. Fox admitted that his four children have never watched the movie. I'm sorry. What? What kind of right kids up. don't watch one of the greatest movies ever starring their own father? What do you think about that? I don't, I don't, it's gotta be so weird to have your father be somebody so iconic as Michael J. Fox, like but from family you, ties yeah, to no. back to the future, to spin city. Like 
this is a man that has defined many generations. And I would just want to know what it is, what it looks like that he's done that has been so influential. That, that almost makes me a little bit angry. I mean, how do you not, I mean, the man, you're living in this giant mansion and you're like gold plated sheets and you don't want to at least know why you're in that situation. Why your first car was a, a Tesla. Doc's distinctive hunched over look developed when the filmmakers realized the extreme difference in height between Christopher Lloyd and Michael J. Fox. Fox is five foot four and a half while Lloyd is six foot one. So to compensate for the height difference, directors and Mechas used specific blocking where the two often stood far apart at different camera depths. And for close-ups, Lloyd would have to hunch over to appear in frame with Fox. The same approach was used in the two sequels. I think the height difference to me really doesn't make much of a difference because Marty's supposed to be in high school. He's a young kid. That doesn't really bother me. Any thoughts? Yeah, I think I'm with you on that. Um, but there is the perception of the difference, at least in their age and their height and how big they are. Like, I always do picture Marty McFly as being a little bit smaller. But okay. that might be because I'm so familiar with Michael J. Fox. I don't know. Okay. Got a couple casting notes. I like. I always like these. According to Bob Gale, Johnny Depp auditioned for the role of Marty McFly. Who said, I looked through the notes and I said, geez, I don't even remember that we read Johnny Depp. So whatever he did wasn't all that memorable, I guess. That's a little rough. But uh, any, could you imagine Johnny Depp as Marty McFly? Because I cannot. No, not a chance. Okay. This one I think you're going to like. Uh, Melora Hardin. Jan! Jan! Was, always, was originally cast as Jennifer but was let go after Stoltz was dismissed with the huh. explanation that the actress was now too tall to be playing against Michael J. Fox. Harden was dismissed before she even had a chance to shoot a single scene and was replaced with uh, Claudia Wells. How much of a bummer is that for uh, Melora Harden? Yeah, that definitely has to sting. No, she did get a great role in the office years later. So we, we hope that Jan is alive and well. Of course she's alive. But, I was going to say, you know, dude, she's her career. Her career is alive and well. I I think she's she's cashing her checks and she's paying her mortgage. Although Stoltz's scenes were all reshot, one image of Stoltz remains. JD, do you know what that scene is? I don't. So in the 1950s diner scene, there's a close up of Bip, of Biff's face as Marty launches the punch at him. This was not reshot, so you can see Stoltz's hand and arm and his head is also visible to the left of the screen for a few frames. I have rewatched it. It is most definitely Stoltz. So does he get royalties for that then? I would be suing for it uh, if I were him, but uh, that's just the uh, business guy in me. But no, I don't believe he does. He did get like a $4 million payout to be fired, though which wasn't bad for 1985. I would have no issues with that. Billy Zane makes his first on-screen appearance in a film. He is one of Biff's cronies. His name is Match. Did you ever notice that Billy Zane was in this movie? Oh, absolutely. I'm all over that. I love young Billy Zane with a full head of hair. He's. <laughs> I love Billy Zane. He's a great actor. Um, yeah. And I think he does 
a good job of being a goon, a henchman, a crony in this movie. And it's just seeing him. It's just great. Okay. Love it. Now try to imagine this for a second. Instead of Tom Wilson dropping the make like a tree and split line. How about if it was Tim Robbins, who is also considered for the role of Biff Tannen? No, it, it has to be the way it is. Okay. And here's the last one. Now, this one gets me a little bit excited. Had they not been able to get Michael J. Fox, Ralph Macchio was offered the role of Marty McFly, but he turned it down because he thought the movie was about a kid, a car, and plutonium pills. Had he accepted, he would have been reunited with his girlfriend from Karate Kid, Elizabeth Shue, in the sequels. What do you think about that? I can see that. I can definitely see that. I can see Machio, yeah. I can see Machio doing that. I think Michael J. Fox, in my opinion, is a better actor. Okay. Um, Warranted. And I I think that, I think they, what, what happened, I think was supposed to happen. We have the movie that was supposed to be. That's going to wrap it up for the interesting facts. We're going to take a quick bathroom break. And JD's going to get into his DeLorean and he's going to zoom over to my house one day in the future. And we're going to be back with the full review on the other side. See ya. What are you doing, Don? I need fuel. Hey, what's up, guys? It's Phantom Dark Dave, and I want to tell you about my new show, Dave's Pop Culture Podcast. So everybody knows me as a horror buff, but did you know I like so many different things? I like science fiction, comic books, cartoons. What better way than to express myself than a podcast that can pretty much talk about anything? You're going to have interviews, run-throughs, general conversations. So if you want to do something a little out of the ordinary and have something interesting all in the same, come check me out, Dave's Pop Culture Podcast. My calculations are correct. When this baby hits 88 miles per hour, you're going to see some serious shit. bathroom break jd has hopped into his delorean and he is live and in living color in my office jd what's up man dude it's fantastic to be here Uh, it's been a while since we've had a chance to really catch up and i gotta say i'm super excited that your mic stand has celtic pride at the top of it holding the microphone up to your ugly mug yeah yeah so i should take a photo of this and put it on our twitter but yeah my Mike is being held up by Celtic Pride, Captain Ron, Bushwhack, Blue Collar Comedy Tour, and I know what you did last summer, DVD cases. So that's what happens when you don't have a budget. I know what you did last summer in the archives. Shameless plug. So let's jump into the full review. Ready to dive into things here. The film starts. We're inside Doc Brown's home. We see several clocks are rigged up. A coffee pot starts... A toast pops up, it's all burnt up. Einstein's dog food gets poured into his bowl, and we see it's overflowing. Uh, on the TV, a reporter saying they're missing plutonium. She says Libyan terrorists have claimed ownership over it. Marty enters, we see his scuffed up white Nikes. He puts down his skateboard, kicks it over towards the wall, where it hits a box that says plutonium. 
Marty goes over to the amplifier, turns everything up as loud as possible, hooks up his guitar, and when he goes to make the first downstroke, that sends him flying into the wall, and the giant speaker has a giant hole in it. We see Marty for the first time, and as he removes his glasses and says, whoa, rock and roll. JD, first thoughts on Michael J. Fox as Marty McFly? Well, first of all, I really kind of don't understand this whole scene. I don't know about you. He walks in and he plugs in and he turns it as high as he can. Is this something that he's always wanted to do but hasn't been able to and Doc Brown is gone? Like, what? seriously, I feel like yeah. I should be looking at you because I can look at you while I'm talking. Right. But uh, <laughs> what's the deal with this scene? I mean, that, that's always bothered me even when I was a kid. I don't know what the setup of this is. I guess we can play Monday morning quarterback 33 years later, but yeah, I mean, it just, it's kind of a throwaway scene. Just get the, the credit titles out of the way. Yeah, but to it is totally worth it. It does introduce us to a cool character, so I'm, I'm good with it. And I never picked up on a lot of the plutonium stuff in the newscaster crap. Yeah. So the phone rings, Marty gets up, answers it, and it's Doc. He says, Marty, is that you? Who else would it be, right? So we meet him at he, Marty. He wants Marty to meet him at 1:15 a.m. at Twin Pines Mall. He's had a major breakthrough, and he will need his assistance. Marty mentions that he left all his equipment on. Doc says, "That reminds me, you better not hook up to the amplifier. There's a slight chance of an overload." Marty smiles and says, "Yeah, I'll keep that in mind." The clock goes off in the room, and Doc says his experiment worked. All the clocks are 25 minutes ahead. Marty says, you're telling me it's 8.25? Damn it, I'm late for school. And then we got that awesome Huey Lewis in the News song that plays The Power of Love. And we've got Marty riding his skateboard down, you know, off the back of different vehicles. JD, what'd you think of this opening sequence? I think that this is a really cool sequence. And I, I like that this piggybacks on the sequence before, but I think it does a better job of sort of illustrating and establishing who Marty McSuperfly is. And it's kind of a fantastic scene. Yeah. One, one of the things I like about the scene is how he kind of hangs off the back of the truck with the skateboard. Like, did you ever do that as a kid? Like, I was going to ask you the same thing. Yeah. No, I never did. I, I liked having all my toes and fingers. Yeah, I, I wouldn't dare get on a skateboard. I would just end it up right on my ass. Like, no, you've never skateboarded? No. I used to skateboard, but okay. not, not by... What, what's that called when you... Skitch? Hitch a ride? Nope, never done that. Piggybacking? I don't know. I like piggybacking. Marty is met at the school door by his girlfriend, Jennifer. She says Strickland is looking for him, so they try to sneak in through another way. Marty's explaining it wasn't his fault this time. Doc set all the clocks 25 minutes ahead, but that's when Strickland finds him. He warns him about hanging around that older man, Doc Brown, and he gives... What? <laughs> that older man makes it sound so creepy. <laughs> That you're making fun of my spelling errors? No, I'm, I'm making fun of an older man thirsting to beak with a young squire. Yeah, it does come off a little strange the way he says it. Um, so yeah, he warns him about him and he gives Marty his fourth tardy in a row and then mentions that he heard Marty's band is auditioning. He says, why bother McFly? You're too much like your old man. No McFly ever amounted to anything in the history of Hill Valley. Marty says, well, history is about to change. I love that line. What'd you think? Some solid foreshadowing. Yeah. Next, we actually see Huey Lewis. Marty walks on stage, plugs in his guitar, and says, hi, uh, we're the Pinheads. Huey stands up as they're starting to play, and they barely have gotten even into the first verse. 
He says, I'm sorry. I'm afraid you're just too darn loud. Outside, Jennifer is trying to pet Marty back up. She says, it's like Doc always says. Marty chimes in, yeah, if you put your mind to it, you can accomplish anything. A couple of girls walk by, which Marty turns and stares <laughs> at their ass. He does it right in front of her, too. He's got no uh, no scruples. Right. And she doesn't seem to mind. She just grabs his chin and like moves it back toward her. And Marty says, I just don't think I can take that kind of rejection. Christ, I'm starting to sound like my old man. Jennifer says, oh, come on, he's not that bad. And then Marty sees a 4x4 Toyota truck go by, and he makes the comment that someday, Jennifer, someday, wouldn't that be great? Take that truck to the lake, throw a couple sleeping bags in the back, lie under the stars. Jennifer wants to know if his mom knows yet. He says, no way. I would get that lecture about how she never did that. He thinks she was born a nun. They kiss for a moment, but they're interrupted by a lady asking them to help save the clock tower. She says, 30 years ago, lightning struck that clock tower, and the clock hasn't run since. Marty cuts her off and gives her a quarter, and then she gives him a flyer. They kiss again. Her dad beeps the horn, and she runs over, puts her phone number on the back of the flyer, and he stuffs it in his jacket pocket. What do you think of this scene? Wait, she gives her phone number to him? Yeah. She, so he doesn't have her phone number yet? Apparently not. But they're beaking. But they're planning a trip to the lake. Yeah. Okay. No, I mean, outside of that, I think that they do a great job of sort of building the coincidences that are going to be coming up throughout the movie. So, like, yeah. it, there's we're really planting the seeds for the storyline and then for the, the juxtaposition of the characters and then how they're going to, you know, reflect one another. It's just a mirror image of itself for later. Real quick, just to, to make it sound like the writers didn't know what the heck they're doing, she actually says, I'm going to be at so-and-so's house tonight. Let me give you that number. That's why she gives him the number. Oh, cool. So. Marty arrives at home to see a totaled vehicle in the driveway. He goes inside. We meet Biff. JD, first thoughts on Biff here, played by Tom Wilson. Biff is fantastic. He makes the scene, and in a lot of ways, he kind of makes this movie. Uh, okay. And he does a great job of solidifying himself through the trilogy, too. Like, he's he's a force. Biff is a great guy. He's nothing but caring for the McFly family. He's he's a class act. Stand-up guy. Okay. And then in the other breath, let's talk about George McFly, played by Crispin Glover. What do you think about him? Yeah, he's kind of an asshole. He's, he's kind of mean to Biff, you know, like he's Biff just wants some help with his workload and right. and why would he think that why would why would McFly think that he can just hand over his notes and his papers without retyping them? Like, hello, McFly. Hello. Want me to get fired? You wouldn't want that, would you? Ugh. Butthead. Jeez. The way you the way you looked at me and said that, it was like you were talking to me when you said butthead. Well. Biff is trying to blame everything on George. He says, there's a blind spot. George assumes that Biff's insurance will pay for the damage. Biff says, my insurance? What I want to know is who's going to pay for the stain on my coat? I spilled beer all over it when I crashed. I never noticed until this actual watching that he talks about drinking and driving. And he had a beer in his hand. Did you catch that before this? I want to say I, I noticed it before, but it wasn't as comical until yeah. this time around <laughs> when I was just really thinking about being in their age range and being adults and just casually, ah, I'm going to go jump in the car. Let me grab some brewskis. <laughs> Let me get a road beer. You got to have a traveler. Yeah. 
Biff walks over to Marty, and they face off for the first time. They're going to do this a lot over the, the uh, three movies in the trilogy. And uh, he just looks at Marty and says, What are you looking at, butthead? Say hi to your mom for me. <laughs> With the way he says that, it's so creepy, right? Say hi to your mom for me. I know. Like, you don't know what I used to do to her in high school. And almost like, uh, you don't know what I've done to her. I am your father. Yeah. But clearly he's not. Well, spoiler alert, maybe he is. George says, I know what you're going to say, Marty. And you're right. You're right. But Biff, he just happens to be my supervisor. And I'm afraid I'm just not very good at confrontations. Marty flips out about the car. And we meet the rest of the family next. Marty's mom, Lorraine, drops the cake on the table and says, I guess we're eating the cake alone this year. Uncle Joey didn't make parole. JD, let's talk about Lorraine, played by Leah Thompson. What do you think of her as the mother and just overall here in this, this film? I never really noticed like how sad of a figure she is. Like mm-hmm. Just the way she looks and the way she walks and the way she talks and the way she clinks the ice in her glass. I mean, her character runs deep. There, there's, yeah. a, there's a lot of liquor in that, in that tale. Let's listen to our first clip. As Lorraine explains how she met their father. Well, it'll just happen. Like the way I met your father. That was so stupid. Grandpa hit him with the car. It was meant to be. Anyway. If Grandpa hadn't hit him, then none of you would have been born. Yeah, well. Still don't understand what Dad was doing in the middle of the street. What was it, George? Bird watching? What, Lorraine? What? Anyway, your grandpa hit him with the car and brought him into the house. He seemed so helpless. Like a little lost puppy. And my heart just went out to him. Yeah, Mom, we know. You've told us this story a million times. You felt sorry for him, so you decided to go with him to the fish under the sea dance. No, no, it was the enchantment under the sea dance. Our first date. I'll never forget it. It was the night of that terrible thunderstorm. Remember, George? Your father kissed me for the very first time on that dance floor. And it was then that I realized that I was going to spend the rest of my life with him. JD, what do you think of that scene? A lot of this movie comes from planting the seeds that pay off later. So it's really cool to sort of see how they're setting themselves up for success and then to boomerang that story back. So I, I kind of like it. It's pretty neat, and it's it's definitely worth the payoff later. So Marty has fallen asleep next when Doc calls. He tells him to stop and pick up his video camera before he goes to the mall. So Marty arrives at the Twin Pines Mall. He skates up and sees Einstein first. The truck doors open slowly. Smoke comes out, and we hear a car start up and back out of the truck. Let's listen to the first interaction between Marty and Doc. Doc! Marty! You made it! Yeah! Welcome to my latest experiment. This is the big one, the one I've been waiting for all my life. Uh, well, it's a DeLorean, right? Stay with me, Marty. All your questions will be answered. Roll yeah. tape. Okay, I will proceed. Uh, Doc. Uh, is that a demon? Never mind that now. Never mind that now. Right. Not now. Not now. All right, I'm ready. Good evening. I'm Dr. Emmett Brown. I'm standing on the parking lot at Twin Pines Mall. It's Saturday morning, October 26, 1985. 1.18 a.m. 
And this is temporal experiment number one. Come on, Heidi. Hey, hey, boy, get in there. Yeah, no, boy. In here, go. Sit down. Let's put your seatbelt on. That's it. Whoa, whoa. Okay. Please note that Einstein's clock is in precise synchronization with my control watch. Got it? Right, check them. Good. Have a good trip, Einstein. Watch ahead. JD, what'd you think of this scene? Doc is a loon, okay? And the relationship that he has with young Marty is kind of weird. And he's definitely has a flair for the dramatics, which sort of caught me off guard. I, I remember there being a lot more straightforward interaction between the two of them. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about Christopher Lloyd. We, we discussed him a little bit in Adam's Family in our archives. What do you think of him in this role as Doc Brown? It kind of threw me off to... I remember Doc Brown being so old, and to see Christopher Lloyd in this and see a young face behind the old little get-up that they give him, like, yeah. it threw me off. I'm like, he's not that old. I remember him being, like, <laughs> 80 years old. Yeah, I agree. And I think this is kind of, like, his definitive role as an actor. I think this is what he's remembered for over anything else that he's done. And he's done a lot of movies. Including Piranha. He's pretty good in Piranha. Yeah. We got to talk about the DeLorean as you look to the left on my TV, you can see I'm a, I'm a fan of the car uh, and also Marty. But what, what do you think of the DeLorean car? I was always amazed by the doors. That was always yeah. like the thing to me. Like the, to have the doors open the way that they did just blew my mind. Like you're not expecting that and you don't know what you're going to get when you see the car come up. And then for the doors to open like that, you're just kind of like, all other doors are jackasses for not opening up like that. Like, what the hell are you thinking of doors? Like, seriously, yeah. what, are, what are you thinking? Well, it's a bummer. Like, if you ever open a real DeLorean car, like, it doesn't go <laughs> and open up, unfortunately. It just, like, freaks. Because you would know, because you've actually opened up the yeah, door of the DeLorean. I, I know. I I told you the sad story. I had my, my fingertips on a DeLorean car that was going to be mine, and my uncle sold it for five grand. Yeah, that doesn't mean that you need to rub it in my face. Well... Doc starts up the DeLorean with a remote control. He gets the car into position and tells Marty that if my calculations are correct, when this baby hits 88 miles per hour, you're going to see some serious shit. He flips on the remote. It starts revving the engine. It hits 65 miles per hour. He clicks a button, and the car takes off, heading right towards them. Marty tries to move, but Doc pulls him back. The car hits 88 miles per hour and then disintegrates into thin air, leaving a line of fire. It goes right between both of their legs. Doc yells, we did it! I did it! I don't think he's giving Marty any credit. 88 miles per hour! Marty says, Jesus Christ, Doc. You disintegrated Einstein. Doc explains it's not where the hell are they. It's when the hell are they. Einstein has just become the world's first time traveler. Doc says, I sent him into the future. One minute into the future to be exact. Marty says, so you're telling me you built a time machine out of a DeLorean? Doc says, the way I see it, if you're going to build a time machine into a car, you might as well do it in style. Doc has to jump out of the way as the DeLorean arrives back in the parking lot. Doc slowly makes his way over to the car and gets the door open, and he shows Marty that Einstein's clock is exactly one minute ahead. He skipped over that minute to instantly arrive at this time. 
Let's listen to Doc explain how it all works. He's all right. He's fine. And he's completely unaware that anything happened. As far as he's concerned, the trip was instantaneous. That's why his watch is exactly one minute behind mine. He skipped over that minute to instantly arrive at this moment in time. Come here. I'll show you how it works. First, you turn the time circuits on. This readout tells you where you're going. This one tells you where you are. This one tells you where you were. You input your destination time on this keypad. Say you want to see the sign of the Declaration of Independence. Or witness the birth of Christ. Here's a red letter date in the history of science. November 5th, 1955. Yes, of course, November 5th, 1955. Why, I don't get what happened. <laughs> that was the day I invented time travel. I remember it vividly. I was standing on the edge of my toilet, hanging a clock. The porcelain was wet. I slipped, hit my head on the edge of the sink. And when I came to, I had a revelation, a vision, a picture in my head, a picture of this. This is what makes time travel possible. The flux capacitor. What do you think of this scene, JD? First of all, the language, right? Like, come on, this is a kid's movie. You, you can't just casually drop the shit bomb. <laughs> it's a shit storm here. But in, in, all, in all honesty, like, it's, it's a cool scene because it allows them to lace a lot of exposition into what's going on without it being boring because Marty's genuinely amazed and he's... he's needs to learn what's happening so he can react accordingly. So it's not just Doc saying the line and explaining what's happening for his own sake. It's actually, you know, the writers delivering critical information, not to the audience, but to Marty. Right. Good. That's a great point. So Marty's asking Doc what the car runs on. Doc says it requires something with a little more kick. He tells Marty it runs on plutonium. Doc and Marty have to put on radiation suits so they can fill the engine with plutonium. Doc says he's going to go 25 years into the future. J.D., I never realized this prior to re-watching this and taking like detailed notes, but originally he was going to go 25 years. At the end of the movie, he goes 30 years. Why do you think they did that? I don't know. Do you, do you know? No. So, I mean, instead of going to 2010, they go to 2015. And the only explanation we get at the end of the movie is, it's a nice round number. Well, that and they wanted to see the Cubbies win the World Series, so they had to <laughs> They had to go to that time zone. Well, they should have went to 2016. They missed it by one year. Yeah, but they were they were in, they were they were in they the were ballpark. Close. Yeah. So Doc says he's always wanted to see the future. He'll be able to see who wins the next 25 World Series. All right, okay, Marty wants him to look him up when he gets there. Doc says he will, and Marty starts recording Doc. He starts talking. And he says, I almost forgot. Extra plutonium. How would I ever get back? We hear Einstein barking. Doc says, oh my god, they found me. I don't know how, but they found me. Run for it, Marty! Marty wants to know who, and Doc says, the Libyans! Doc tries to fire a gun, but really doesn't know how. Just kind of like backfires on him. He goes out to the back of the truck, where we see him get gunned down. Marty yells, no, you bastards! They're about to kill Marty as well, but their gun jams up, and that gives Marty enough time to jump into the DeLorean. 
Marty looks back at Doc one more time and sees he's not moving. So he tries to lose the Libyans, kind of going left and right, circles around the parking lot. And he finally gets a clear runway where he slams the car into another gear and says, let's see if you bastards can do 90. Marty travels through time. And when he comes out on the other end, he's on a farm property, runs over a scarecrow and crashes into a big barn. JD, what'd you think of this scene here? The brutal demise of Doc Brown. I was haunted by this when I was a kid. Yeah. Like, he gets thrashed hard. Yeah, I mean, if you're watching this for the first time, and that'd be really cool if we have some people watching this for the very first time because of the podcast, like, you don't know that he's not going to be a part of the rest of the movie. Like, at that point, you kind of think he's dead, right? Well, he's, he's clearly sliced and diced. Those bullets can't tell lies, Kyle. Come on. Right. He's, he's no Logan. The homeowners come out to see what's going on. Marty opens up the door, and that sends them running back into the house. They think he's some kind of space invader. (laughs) (laughs) Marty comes out to apologize for the barn, and he gets shot at by Mr. Peabody. It's the same one that Doc had mentioned earlier when he said, you know, this used to be all pine trees. Old man Peabody used to own it. The little boy is telling his dad that he's already mutated. Marty drives the barn or drives through the barn and uh, through Mr. Peabody's fence, and he yells, My Pines! Marty's talking to himself, and he says, Get a grip. It's just a dream, a very intense dream. He slams his brakes. He gets out and sees a sign that says Lion Estates, and no property has been built yet. Of course, that's where Marty grew up, and that's where his house is. So he says, This is nuts. He tries to start the car, but the alarm goes off, and his plutonium Plutonium Chamber is telling him he's all out. Marty has to hide the DeLorean and walk two miles back to town. JD, if you could travel back in time, what year would you go to and why? That's an excellent question, and I have a very weird answer, and this is a an answer that I've prepared. Not just for this episode, but for any time I'm asked this. Sure. I would go back and I would watch the assassination of Abraham Lincoln by John Wilkes Booth. Because I think that is an amazing historical piece of, of event that happened where we had a young 27-year-old actor who decided, I'm going to murder the president. And he did. Okay. Now, since you're back in there and you can alter the history, would you yell, down? So you're just describing an episode of The Twilight Zone, which is an awesome episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, if I'm, I think that I would abide by the rules of time travel. When you're going into the past, you have to be an observer. Okay. Would you like to know where I would like to go? Yes, Kyle. Please tell me where you would like (laughs) to go in your smug, smug, bearded voice. I don't know what year it is, but whatever year Woodstock was, I would like to be live and in person. 69. (laughs) (laughs) What about the future? Where would you go in the future? Or what would you want to see or do? I mean, Doc Brown wants to see who wins the World Series. What does Kyle want from the future? Maybe I'll go 30 years into the future so the Bears can finally win a Super Bowl again. That's not happening. Oh. Well, I just put it out there. You don't know that. Marty gets back in the town. He passes a movie poster that's starring Ronald Reagan. It says, any seat, 50 cents. He enters the town square. He hears the clock tower ring. And a man tosses a newspaper in the trash. Marty grabs it and it reads November 5th. 1955. He enters the diner. The server says, hey, kid, would you jump ship? He looks up uh, Doc's number in the telephone booth and tries to call. The phone rings. No answer. 
We see George McFly at the counter, kind of out of focus. First time I ever noticed that. Doc doesn't answer. Marty rips out the page from the phone book. And the server's kind of getting fed up with him. He wants to know if he's going to order something. Marty says, yeah, let me take a tab. If you want a tab, you're going to have to order something, kid. Marty says, okay, give me a Pepsi free. Did you know that was the original name of Diet Pepsi? I did not. I had to look it up. It was the caffeine-free Diet Pepsi. It was called Pepsi Free. Oh, so it's caffeine-free. It's not free of price. I wonder if anybody mm. from 1950s would confuse those two things. Right. So he's like, yeah, if you want a Pepsi, pal, you're going to pay for it. Zing. Marty finally gives in and just says, give me something without sugar. And he gets to pour a cup of coffee. I love this scene. The guy just doesn't understand anything. It's like Marty's from a different planet. What would you think? It's cool because they have these reoccurring gags that don't necessarily go old. And yeah. it's, it's kind of like this funny little shtick that they have. Mm -hmm. Like the, the writing is solid with those jokes because they seem, they don't seem forced at all. And that comes from good performances. Um, but it also comes from planting the seeds that they've already done. So we get to see a lot of those ripples from what was said earlier and what was established already. Now it's coming out. Yeah. So next we hear Biff yell, McFly, I thought I told you never to be in here. Let's listen to Biff as he uh, talks to George McFly. J.D., what do you think of this scene? Again, we're really working with stuff that we've established already between the characters, and so to watch it happen from what we've seen occur to how it affects the past and how it affects the future, it's like a visual conundrum. Like It's, it's fun to see, but there's a lot of meaning and purpose behind it. So Biff leaves, Marty just stares at George, who finally turns, he's like, What? The busboy comes over to George and tells him, Hey man, stand tall. Have some respect for yourself. My best Goldie that I can do. He said, Look at me. You think I'm going to be here in this slop house my whole life? The server says, Watch it, Goldie. Goldie said, No, sir. I'm going to make something of myself. Marty chimes in, That's right. You're going to be mayor. Goldie, and Goldie says, Mayor. Now that's a great idea. He tells Mr. Carruthers, you just watch it. I'm going to be mayor, and I'm going to clean this town up. He says, Mayor Goldie Wilson. I like the sound of that. Marty notices that George has snuck out. He chases after him, and he yells, Hey, Dad, I mean, George, you on the bike. J.D., what do you think of the first thoughts on Marty and George interacting? Well, first I want to go back and, and make the comparison to what Mayor Goldie Wilson's campaign slogan is to the current guy that's soliciting for mayo and he's got a truck that's going around town and they have the same campaign promise right um written on the truck which i just noticed and i thought it was interesting but marty and george it's got to be so weird to think about like we were talking about earlier about meeting your dad or your parents in high school and to not call them dad <laughs> which is why i kind of purposely don't like calling my parents mom or dad i just call them by their first name because right. if i ever do meet them in the past i don't want to accidentally say hey mom no i'm gonna say hey raylin Practice. Marty finds George up in the tree, and he's peeping on a young lady who's getting changed in her bedroom. George falls down in the street, and he's about to get hit by the car when Marty pushes him out of the way, and he takes the hit instead. Now, earlier, we heard Lorraine ask George what he was doing that day when he was hit by her father's car. Marty has now altered history. J.D., what do you think about that? It's a good payoff. It's so interesting to see that he puts himself in this position. 
and then alters future in such a way that it affects him on a grand scale. Yeah. It's going to affect him in a pretty creepy way here next. So Marty's waking up in the next scene. He's asking, kind of calling out for his mom. We hear Lorraine's voice. He says he had a terrible dream that he went back in time. He says, there, there, you're safe and sound in good old 1955. Marty shoots up. He's, 1955? You're my, you're my. She introduces herself as Lorraine. <laughs> Marty still can't find the words and finally says, you're so young. He pulls off his bed sheet and he's wearing only underwear. She keeps calling him Calvin because his underwear say Calvin Klein. And he says, actually, my friends call me Marty. So she's like, oh. Nice to meet you, Alvin Marty. She hears her mom call up for her, and she rushes down the stairs. We see Marty go downstairs as well as his, I guess, what would be his grandpa. Says, what were you doing in the middle of the street there, kid your age? Marty finally gets to meet his uncle Joey, who's always been incarcerated. He squats down and says, you better get used to these bars, kid. The Rain's dad finally fixes the television set. J.D., did you notice Wayne Arnold in the scene? Oh, absolutely. And I remember him from previous watches of this movie, but it never gets old. Same, anytime you have a character like that who's so recognizable, and I just wanted him to start calling Marty a butthead, and we find <laughs> out there's some secret link between him and Biff. Yeah. The butthead gang. That sounds like a really bad porno. <laughs> That's... There's a couple one-liners I really like from the first scene. The mom says, you look familiar. Do I know your mother? And Marty turns to look at Lorraine. He's like, yeah, I think you do. And then the dad is giving Marty directions. He says, yeah, that's past John F. Kennedy, right? And his dad's like, who the hell is John F. Kennedy? What do you think of this scene here, kind of interacting with his grandma, grandpa, and uncles? It's, it's cool because it takes that reoccurring gag of him being from the future and knowing stuff that they don't know. And it does it in a cool way that's not really on the nose. But I can't help but like wonder, like, what is he doing to like jeopardize his own future by introducing mm -hmm. him as Marty? So even in this new future that he's creating, even if he does rescue himself from the past, his mom's going to have memories of meeting him, a boy named Marty, who then looks like Marty in the future, who right. she knows. Like, it's just... Time travel gets so ooey-gooey sometimes, but they, they do a great job of handling it. Marty leaves Lorraine after she touches his leg, and he's like, I'll see you later. Much later. He arrives at Doc's house. Doc is trying to read his mind with a machine he's built, and Marty finally tells him that he's from the future. He came here in a time machine that you invented, and he needs his help to get back to the year 1985. Doc, of course, doesn't believe him. He thinks Marty's crazy. Marty tries to prove he's not crazy by showing him a photo of his siblings. And Doc says, pretty mediocre photo editing. It cut part of your brother's head off. JD, I never noticed until now that the brother was already starting to disappear from the photo. Yeah, he screwed up. Yeah. Marty made a mistake. Mistaken Marty. Doc wants to know who the president is, if he's from the future. And Marty says, Ronald Reagan. Doc starts laughing. Ronald Reagan, the actor? Marty says he knows how you got that bump on your head, and he tells them the story about how Doc invented the flux capacitor, and that's what makes time travel possible. So Doc actually believes him finally, and next we see Marty and Doc arrive at the DeLorean location. Doc pulls out a drawing of the flux capacitor that he had 
taken down after he bumped his head in his bathroom. And Marty opens the door and shows him the actual flux capacitor. Doc yells, it works. And Marty says, you bet your ass it works. They go back to the lab. And Marty plays the recording of Doc talking to the camera. Doc comments on how he looks like an old man. That part really made me laugh because he... I don't think he looked all that much different, did you? No, his hair's just like a little bit shorter. Right. So Christ, I look like an old man. Let's listen to Doc reacting to hearing what it takes to power the DeLorean. Whoa, this is it. This is the part coming up, Doc. No, 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 no. This sucker's electrical. But I need a nuclear reaction to, to generate the 1.21 gigawatts of electricity. What did I just say? The flux capacitor stores... But I need a nuclear reaction to, to generate the 1.21 gigawatts of electricity. 1.21 gigawatts! 1.21 gigawatts! Great Scott! What? What the hell is a gigawatt? How could I have been so careless? 1.21 gigawatts! Tom, how am I going to generate that kind of power? It can't be done, can it? Look, all we need is a little plutonium. Oh, I'm sure that in 1985, plutonium is available in every corner drugstore, but in 1955, it's a little hard to come by. Marty, I'm sorry, but I'm afraid you're stuck here. JD, what'd you think? Science. Science, bitch. <laughs> no, seriously, it's, it's so yeah. cool that, like, I don't, I'm not a science-minded person, but to get your mind blown... To me, I can compare it to like if you're writing a story and you're stuck in a scene and you can't figure it out. And then somebody says the simplest things and it's like, oh, holy moly, that's how it needs to be. There's no other way it could be. I'm an idiot for not thinking of it. Science, bitch. Yeah, and I love the line where he drops the 1.21 gigawatts and Doc freaks out. And then he's like, plutonium, how can I use plutonium? What kind of idiot am I? Of course, he remedies that in the future. Spoiler. Uh, Doc tells Marty he can't generate that type of power. Marty says he has to get back to 1985. He's got a girlfriend. He shows her the note that she wrote. On the backside, we see the Save the Clock Tower. Marty tells him that he's his only hope. Obi-Wan. <laughs> Doc says, I'm sorry, but the only thing that could generate that type of power is a bolt of lightning. But unfortunately, you never know when or where it's going to hit. Marty turns and says, we do now. And he hands the flyer to Doc. And Doc says, next Saturday, we're sending you back to the future. And he points right at the camera. What did you think of this scene? I love the point where he points at the camera like yeah. that. And he says, back to the future. I wonder, I want, to, I want to get in our DeLorean and go to the theater in 1985 to see were people clapping and standing up and cheering right. at that part in theater. I feel like they were. I, I agree. You, you should agree, because I think I'm right. <laughs> Doc warns Marty that he should not leave the house. Anything he does could have serious implication on future events. He wants to know if he's interacting with anyone else today. And Marty's like, well, just my parents. Doc says, give me the photo. It's just as I thought. Your brother's head is now gone. Great Scott, just as I expected. We see George getting picked on next. He's got a sign on his back that says, kick me. JD, did you ever put a sign on somebody's back that said, kick me? Oh, absolutely. Okay. You want to remove it from mine now? No, I'm going to kick you in the tuchus. Doc wants to know what his mother ever saw in him, and Marty says he felt bad because her dad hit him with the car. And he rubs the back of his head and says he hit me with the car. Marty goes over to befriend George, 
Marty introduces George to Lorraine, but she doesn't even look at him. The bell rings and she runs past Doc, and we hear her say, isn't he a dream, to her girlfriends. Doc tells Marty that they have issues, and apparently his mother is infatuated with him. It's kind of weird, right? It's like a reverse Oedipus complex. <laughs> at lunch, Marty is talking with George. He wants to know what he's writing about, and George says, they're just stories, science fiction stories about people from other planets. Marty wants to read some of it, but George says he doesn't let anyone read his stories. Marty tells George that Lorraine told me to tell you that she wants you to ask her out. He encourages him to go over and ask her to the Enchantment Under the Sea dance. And George says, I think she'd rather go with someone else. And he points over and we see Biff pretty much sexually assaulting Lorraine at the lunch table. Uh, she smacks him in the face and Marty goes over to break it up and he gets... Pushed by Biff, he pushes him back, and then they kind of break it up, and Biff tells him, since you're new, I'll cut you some slack, so make like a tree and get out of here. What'd you think of this scene? Marty McFly's kind of a badass. Yeah. I hate that they sort of bill him as like a nerd at times. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, we talked about that, right? And At least with Casein. I don't think so. I thought we did. Maybe. Maybe we did. Maybe we didn't. Either way... You know, he's kind of like a mismatched character, but he's got a set of huevos on him when he just stares down Biff like that. Oh, yeah. I mean, Biff's a big boy. Don't you dare call him chicken. Outside, Marty has to chase chase down George again. George tells him he can't ask her out because he doesn't want to miss his favorite show, Science Fiction Theater. Marty checks the photo, and his brother is almost totally gone now. Later that night, Marty breaks into George's room. He puts headphones on him. And starts playing all this loud music. And then he says in his best Darth Vader voice, My name is Darth Vader. And I'm an extraterrestrial from the planet Vulcan. The next morning, George comes running to Marty. And he needs him to help ask Lorraine to the dance. Or Darth Vader is going to melt his brain. Marty's plans work pretty good. What'd you think? Yeah, I again, it's a baller move to break into somebody's house dressed in that uniform and play loud music and spout out pop culture references from the future. Not only is he risking getting arrested, but he's tweaking with the future. Because again, what happens when George sees Star Wars and remembers the weird, creepy guy that he never saw again who broke into his house late at night? Yeah. So Marty starts giving him some advice. And I love the part that George is just writing everything down on his notebook. What do you think of that? It just shows about just how nerdy and uncool yeah. he really is, which is the opposite of what Marty is. Marty is a badass superfly. Yeah. Superfly. 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 Snooker? Yeah. Kidding? Is he dead? Or yeah. just in jail? Didn't he murder someone? No. Yeah. Actually, yeah. Yeah. Long story. Not convicted, though. What? Rest yes. in peace. George enters the diner. He orders a milk. Chocolate. He takes a swig, slams it back down, and he goes over to Lorraine and starts reading his notes. He says, Lorraine, my density has brought me to you. Like, what? Wait, I don't... Do I know you? Yes, I'm George. George McFly. I'm your density. I mean destiny. Biff enters and the music stops. He says, hey, McFly, I thought I told you to never be in here. Marty trips Biff. As they have a standoff, Marty yells for Biff to look, and he punches him and runs out. He goes out, grabs a skateboard-looking thing from this young kid, kind of breaks off the wooden handle, 
and starts skateboarding away. He grabs hold of the back of the car, and Biff and his cronies give chase. They're about to ram him here when Marty walks up over the top of the car, off the back, and lands back on his skateboard. Biff can't stop and runs into a giant truck full of manure. It dumps all over him, and he says, I'm going to kill him. Lorraine's friends ask who he is and where he's from, and she says, I don't know, but I'm going to find out. J.D., what do you think of this scene, and what do you think about the story arc now that we're about the halfway point? No, it's a, we've got a great setup from everything that we've seen from 1985. Everything in 1955 is really coolly set up. The stakes are extraordinarily high, and there's a very, very real sense of urgency. Like, Marty McFly has a, a set of goals that he needs to accomplish, otherwise his world will crumble and implode upon itself, thereby creating a paradox where he no longer exists. That's effed up. Yeah, pretty scary. Now, we see Doc showing Marty a model of the town. He, of course, apologizes for the crudity of the model. He didn't have the time to build it to scale or to paint it. And this is a reoccurring theme throughout all the movies that I love. Let's listen to Doc explain the plan to Marty. Let me show you my plan for sending you home. Please excuse the crudity of this model. I didn't have time to build it to scale or to paint it. It's good. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Okay, now. We run some industrial strength electrical cable from the top of the clock tower down, suspending it over the street between these two lampposts. Meanwhile, we've outfitted the time vehicle with this big pole and hook, which runs directly into the flux capacitor. At the calculated moment, you start off from down the street, driving directly toward the cable, accelerating to 88 miles per hour. According to the flyer, at precisely 10.04 p.m. this Saturday night, lightning will strike the clock tower, electrifying the cable, just as the connecting hook makes contact, thereby sending 1.21 gigawatts into the flux capacitor and sending you back to 1985. All right, now, watch this. You wind up the car and release it. I'll simulate the lightning. Katie, thoughts on the plan to send Marty back to the future? I like to try to put myself in Marty's shoes and try to imagine what he's thinking and the fear. I mean, it's kind of a scary plan, right? Yeah. I, I, I'm thinking that I would be scared. Yet yeah, you got to drive a car with a metal hook into a lightning bolt. Yeah, I'd be a little scared. I mean, can you imagine Facebook in 1955, that update? <laughs> hey, y'all. See you later. Metal pulling lightning bolts into the future. Yo, give me a poke before I'm out of here. Poking still a thing on Facebook? Let the record show Kyle winked at me when he said that. Well, Doc asks Marty how things are going with George, and he thinks it's, it's going good when they hear a knock at the door and it's Lorraine. Lorraine admits that she followed him home. This is actually the only scene in the entire trilogy of Back to the Future where Doc and Lorraine have any interaction he just says hello and walks away how strange is that three movies one line i did not know that i'm full of interesting facts <laughs> the plan has totally backfired on marty she wants him to ask her to the dance and the next scene is marty telling george the plan for the dance let's listen to a clip here jd thoughts on the plan it sounds so easy doesn't it don't all plans like that sound so easy yeah all the, all the way back to second grade when you were planning on giving a flower to a girl and, you know, 
then you get stung by a bee and you you run home crying. <laughs> Plans like that don't work, right. do they? I don't know. No. Nah. Later that night, Doc is setting things up for the big night. They have a nice moment here where Doc thanks Marty and says he's going to really miss him. And it's going to be really hard for him to have to wait 30 years for him to talk about tonight and the events. Marty says he will miss him as well. Marty tries to tell Doc about the future, but Doc cuts him off. He says, whatever you have to tell me, I will find out through the natural course of time. Marty goes into the diner to write him a letter about the shooting, and the envelope says, do not open until 1985. Outside, we see Marty put the letter in Doc's jacket. What do you think of that scene? Clever. Marty's a clever little cat, and I wonder... I don't know if I could last 30 years with a letter that I would found that says, do not open till 1985. Right. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm the kind of guy that would snoop for my Christmas presents. <laughs> so, yeah, I think I would last like 30 minutes. I would stare at the letter like for all 30 minutes and go, what's it going to Cut it open and like, oh, my God, I'm going to die. And then I'd spend 29 years, 23 hours and 30 minutes thinking about my death. Yes, but at this point, he knows how to create the time machine to go into the future sooner than he discovered it in 1985, thereby giving him the power to skip ahead to the future independently and create a even separate universe line. Okay. Good point. Ugh, we need a whiteboard. It it sounds like (laughs) I'm hating on the time travel in this movie, and I'm not. It's just I think they do a great job of it, and just I love time travel theory and, and alternate universes. It just... Ah, boggles the mind. Marty and Lorraine arrive at the dance. She starts drinking, and Marty freaks out. She tells him not to be such a square. Anybody that's anybody drinks. So he grabs it and takes a drink and spits it out. He's like, and you smoke? Inside, we see Marvin, Barry, and the Starlighters announce that they're taking a little break. Outside, Lorraine goes in for a kiss, and she puts one on Marty, but she stops mid-kiss, kind of backs away. It says, I don't know why, but when I kiss you, it's like I'm kissing my brother. Lorraine says, he's coming, and Marty thinks it's George, but instead it's Biff who pulls him out and says, you caused $300 worth of damage to my car, butthead. I added that, butthead. Biff goes in the car with Lorraine and starts grabbing on her, and he tells his cronies to take Marty out back. They throw him into the trunk. Marvin, Barry, and the Starlighters get out, and one of the guys says, hey, Beat it, spook. This don't concern you. J.D., I had no idea what a spook meant when I was growing up. Did you? Ah, yes. I want to say the first time I saw this movie, I didn't. I thought that they were calling him spook because of all the smoke that comes out of the car. Mm -hmm. And so they thought that Marvin was a ghost. Okay. Because he couldn't see him because it was so dark. (laughs) Yeah. And then it wasn't until maybe when I was 10, 12, 14 years old. Uh that I realized that I was kind of right Uh of why somebody would call someone else a spook and what it really meant. And then I kind of cringed at just how cringy that was as just a common insult. George has made it to the car. He opens the door and says, hey, get your damn hands off. Oh, it's Biff. Lorraine asks him for help, and Biff tells him to beat it. George tells him no and to leave her alone. And Biff tells him he's asking for it. George tries to punch him. Biff catches his hand and twists it. Kind of like the test of power in a WWE match. What'd you think of that? You gotta have the test of power. I never, uh... We've got George hunched over in pain. 
we cut to the car and they have jimmied the trunk open, but Marvin slices his hand in the process. Marty runs back to the car to help George and Lorraine. And we get back to George, who's in a lot of pain. Lorraine's yelling out for help, but Biff pushes her down, which makes George cock his fist. He knocks Biff out cold. Marty sees Biff drop to the ground, and George picks her up and says, Are you okay? Marty smiles as he watches them walk off toward the dance. Marty checks the photo, and now his sister is half gone. We cut the doc who checks his clock, and they've got about 34 minutes before the lightning strike. What do you think of George kind of overcoming things here and knocking out Big Bad Biff? It's really unique because what we've done is now we're not jeopardizing the future as much as we're rewriting it in a new and positive way. Right. Because now George has overcome a lot of his fears and anxieties and is more of a man now as a result of this than he was from the previous way that they met. Right. So he's he's going to be a different man in the future, I would think. He's, he should be more assertive. He's grown to clench his fists. Yeah. Let the record show I'm clenching my fists. Kyle, you might not know this about me, but I'm very talk with my hands, and I'm very animated okay. when we record. I usually am too, but so, since you're next to me, I'm not like... I was say, so there's probably yeah. times you hear the microphone get knocked, and it's just <laughs> me just having no, no depth perception. Right. So Marty runs back to the mus- musicians and tells them they have to go back and play. They said they can't. You know, he's hurt his hand. Marty says you have to because that's when they dance and they kiss for the first time. If they don't, you don't sing, they don't dance. If they don't dance, they don't kiss. And if they don't kiss, I'm history. Marvin says, hey, man, the dance is over unless you know someone that can play guitar. And the next shot, of course, is Marty playing the guitar. And they start with the, uh, the ballad Earth Angel. J.D., give me a, give me a good Earth Angel, will you? Earth Angel, Earth Angel, pretty brutal. Well, you said you didn't say give you a great <laughs> one. You said give you a good one. George gets cut in on by some redhead kid and tells him to scram and fly. Marty checks the photo and he's starting to fade out himself. He can't play anymore. We hear Lorraine yelling for George. Marty's kind of hunched over on the ground. He can't play his guitar. And finally, we see George push the guy down on the ground. Move in for he moves in for the kiss, and Marty like jumps back on his feet and he's playing the guitar again. He looks over to George, who gives him the old wave, and they finish playing. Marvin says, "Come on, man, let's do something that really kicks." Marty says, "Ah, oh, this is an oldie, but well, it's an oldie where I come from." Marty tells him it's blue riff and B, and watch me for the changes and try to keep up. J.D., what do you think of Marty's performance here with the uh, Johnny, is it Johnny B. Good song? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I feel like I should take a note to that, but... We just call it the good song, the upbeat song, the riff with the spooks, I mean with the gentleman. The oldie. The oldie, but a goodie. He does a great performance here. And the thing that I really want to comment on is a lot of the way that the story is set up is through these mini challenges that they have to go through. And so now Marty McFly just accomplished one of those challenges by ensuring his existence in the future. So now we have sort of like the celebration of him just powering down and or powering up or, right. I don't know, kicking some ass. And he gets his moment in the sun because earlier Huey Lewis tells him, I'm afraid you're just too darn loud, and now here he is rocking the prom. Pretty cool, right? He's, he is rocking the prom. Yeah. So he's on the dance floor. Or sorry, on the dance floor, we hear a couple congratulate George on laying out Biff. 
and the girl says, hey, have you ever thought about running for class president? Marvin calls his buddy on the phone and says, you know that new sound you've been looking for? Well, listen to this. Marty's taking it too far, though. The other musicians have stopped playing, and they're just watching him as he rocks out on the stage. Marty gets on the mic and says, guess you guys aren't ready for that yet, but your kids are going to love it. Lorraine approaches Marty in the backstage. She tells him that George is going to take her home, if that's okay. And George thanks Marty for all his great advice and says, I'll never forget it. Marty tells him good luck and then says, you know, one more thing. If you guys ever have kids and one of them, when he's eight year old, when he's eight years old, sets fire to the rug, go easy on him. They laugh and say, okay, Marty leaves and Lorraine says, Marty, I like that name. JD, what'd you think? Or what do you, do you want to hear my over analytical response yeah. or just my heartfelt response? Give me the first one. Okay, so when we're talking about time travel movies and for her to say, Marty, I like that name, suggests that they're stuck in a paradox loop where everything that they're going through now, they've already gone through before. And so they've already created this loop where in 1985, they have to go back in 1955 to ensure that 1985 happens. Thereby, Marty only ever exists by only ever going back in time to begin with to give her the name and to establish this timeline, which then they go through. And so right. the loop will continue and always will have to happen. It's interesting. What was your heartfelt response? They're so cute. <laughs> I like that. Outside, Doc is checking his watch. And he keeps yelling, damn. And then turns and, damn. Damn, damn, <laughs> damn. <laughs> it's funny scene, isn't it's it? Just, yeah, just so much damn. <laughs> Marty arrives and Doc says, you're late. You have no concept of time? Marty apologizes and says, it was great. He laid Biff out in one punch. I didn't know he had it in him. He, he hands Doc the photo and they're all restored. Marty says, he's never stood up to Biff in his entire life. Doc says, never? Let's listen to Doc telling Marty the plan of how they're going to execute the next couple minutes. Let's set your destination time. I wish Doc was a little bit more concerned with the never part and then him standing up to him. Because yeah. he's not concerned about that, right? No. He's just concerned about getting Marty back to the future. So I think that they've got a lot more to worry about and they've got bigger fish to fry. All right. Well, Tell us what they do next, Kyle. We're getting to the last couple scenes here. Marty and Doc hug. Doc says, I'll see you in about 30 years. Marty says, I hope so. He gets into the DeLorean and Doc finds the letter. He wants to know the meaning of this, and Marty says, it's about the future. Doc says, I told you about the consequences of knowing too much about the future. Marty argues that it's a risk you're going to have to take. Your life depends on it. 
Doc rips up the letter and says, I refuse to accept the responsibilities. Marty is trying to tell him about the future when a branch knocks off the cable wire from the clock tower. Doc races up to the top. He throws down a rope. Marty ties up the cable. Doc pulls it back up. And he almost falls. And he yells down to Marty that they have less than four minutes. So Marty gets to the starting point that Doc has painted out for him. He sets up the hook. He gets in the car and says, damn it, Doc. Why'd you have to tear up that letter? If only I had more time. What am I talking about? I got all the time I need. I'll just go back earlier and I'll get there and warn him. Marty gives himself an extra 10 minutes. The car stops running. Marty can't get it restarted. We cut the dock who is trying to connect the cables when the ledge breaks and he's just barely holding on. We cut the Marty and the car still hasn't started when the alarm goes off. And Marty says, please come on. And he slams his head on the steering wheel, and it starts back up, and he floors it. Back to Doc. He's about ready to connect the cable, but now it's caught. He's, he notices now that it's caught by a branch down on the ground. So when he pulls it to get some slack, it comes undone. We cut back to Marty, and his car's already up to 61 miles per hour, and he's fast approaching. Doc finally connects the cable. He um, attaches something to like the hour hand or the minute hand on the clock, and he slides down the wire, lands on the ground, untangles the wire from the branch, he rushes over to the other, connects it just as the lightning strike hits, sends all the power down the cable line, and connects it just as Marty and the DeLorean hit the cable line. The fire tracks go along the road, and Marty disappears. Doc gets up and runs down the street yelling, Yo, yeah! JD, thoughts on this scene? It reminds me just of, of something that we kind of just saw earlier today where we got to witness that sideshow freak show oh God. at the fair where we got to literally audience, I kid you not, we got to see a woman sit on a chair and have 20, what, 20,000 volts of electricity coursing through her body. And it was so majestic that when a light bulb touched her, yeah, it lit up. Right. I mean, electricity is fascinating. Like. Mm. There's no way you can fake that. You bought that, huh? I saw it with my own two eyes. Well, what do I always say? Leave half of what you see and none of what you hear. My peepers peeped it. Okay. I have a vacant piece of property I'd like to sell you for like a million bucks. Interested? Very. Okay. Sweet. Marty arrives back at the clock tower in 1985, crashing into the movie theater. Now, if you remember... All the way back in our Gremlins episode, I made the uh, the connection that that's the same exact theater. Do you remember that? I do now. Yeah, in our archives. Check it out. Good episode. A homeless man says, crazy drunk driver. Marty gets out and says, everything looks great. He goes to put the car in drive, but it's now died again. He sees the Libyans pass by him, and they're on their way to the Twin Pines Mall. So Marty starts just running after him. He gets to the mall just as Doc is getting gunned down. He hears himself yell, No, you bastard! And then watches himself from earlier jump into the DeLorean, cruise the 88, and go back to the future. Well, I guess it's back to the past? I don't know how to say that right. Anyway, Marty runs down to Doc, who rolls, he rolls him over. There's no movement, but Doc sits up. He reveals a bulletproof vest, and Marty says... How did you know? I never had a chance to tell you. Doc pulls out the letter that's been taped back together. Marty says, what was all that talk about screwing up the space-time continuum? Doc says, eh, what the hell? J 
JD, what do you think of this thing? I love that the doc kept the letter and he pieced it back together. It's such a yeah. cool little callback to everything that we've seen. And again, this movie is set up in these little banks of challenges of what needs to be accomplished and what goals Marty has set, what goals doc has set. And every step of the way, nothing is easy. Once again, the car runs out of gas or power or whatever the hell. And so right. he has to run to get to doc just to see him get murdered again, only to get to see that his pal is a okay. Doc drops Marty off at his house, and he tells Marty he's going ahead about 30 years. Nice round number. He promises to look him up when he gets there. Doc backs out, and we see the lightning strike as he goes into the future. He wakes up the next morning to the back-in-time track from Huey Lewis in the news. Marty goes out for breakfast, and his brother and sister dress pretty nice now. His brother comments that he always wears a shirt and tie to the office. His parents come in, and they also look much better. His dad's got a polo shirt on, shades, he's tan. Marty actually faints when he sees him, and he comes to and says, they look great. He tells his mom she looks so thin. His sister tells him that Jennifer Parker called, and Lorraine says, yeah, isn't tonight the big night of the date at the lake? You've been planning it for two weeks. Katie, what do you think about the, the turn of events here with the parents? It's fun to see that everything that we just got to sit through of the movie actually plays an impact on the future. So it's a yeah. solid payoff. Yeah, I like it a lot. Marty says he's talked about this. You know, the car is wrecked. Everybody flips out. They're like, the car? What? So they open up the door to the uh, to the front lawn, and they see Biff is waxing it now. Biff's got a pretty gnarly comb over, <laughs> and uh, he tells Biff now, or George says to Biff, now, I want to make sure you get two coats of wax on it this time. And Biff is like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm just starting the second coat now. George says, old Biff, what a character. The door opens and after they go back inside and it's Biff rushing in with a box. And he's like, oh, hey, Marty. And he tells George, I think it's your new book. They open the box and it's a, a match made in, or sorry, it's called a match made in space. He says, it's like, I always tell you, if you put your mind to it, you can accomplish anything. Biff goes to Marty and says, here's your keys. You're all waxed up for tonight. Marty's like, keys? He goes outside to find the 4x4 Toyota that he was dreaming about. Jennifer shows up and says, how about a ride? Jennifer comments that you act like you haven't seen me in a week. And he's like, I haven't. They kiss. We hear the DeLorean re-enter. Doc gets out. He's like, Marty! You got to come back with me. Where? Back to the future. He starts going through the trash and he's loading up the new Mr. Fusion. He's changed instead of plutonium. Marty doesn't want to go. He says he just got here. What's wrong with the future? Are we assholes or something? <laughs> Doc says, no, no, Marty, it's your kids. Something has got to be done about your kids. Doc backs out of the driveway with Marty. He says, hey, don't we need some more room to get up to 88 miles per hour? He says, well, we're going. We don't need roads. The DeLorean lifts out of the air and comes crashing into the scene, or comes crashing into the screen. JD, thoughts on the end of the film? It's a pretty iconic ending. It's a great way to sort of close out the story. It ties up so many loose ends while opening the door for part two. Well, not directly, because part two is a, not a direct setup, right? No, but it does rehash a lot of stuff from the original, which I really like. Yeah, as we talk about in the interview with Casey and Gaines, 
you think of this movie as a standalone, but then when we get to part two and even part three, you realize that it's a long extending arc of the McFly and Biff saga. Yeah, absolutely. So going back and watching the movie, how do you feel like Back to the Future has held up over the last 33 years? I would say most everything about it is solid. The yeah. acting is great. The music is excellent. The story is fantastic. I have more of a, an appreciation for the adults in this movie than I've ever had before, being um, is now I'm considered an adult legally. Right. And I think the storytelling and the writing of it, I think, is really worth noting, especially how the film is set up with these different little challenges that need to be accomplished as part of the bigger story. So it's never just act one, act two, act three. It's um, Marty has to solve this problem. Marty has to solve this problem. And it's these continuous problems that are plaguing him from solving the overarching story, which I think is really cool. Okay. Let me ask you this. I, I don't think I've ever asked you this question. Where do you rank back to the future as far as like personally for you and uh, your list of favorite movies? It's not going to be a top 10 for me. Okay. And that has nothing to do with me not enjoying the movie or not thinking that it's okay. an excellent movie. I just, uh, my top 10 is reserved for a different kind of film, but I would definitely say it's, Top 50, okay. if not top 30 or top 25. Like, it's, it's a movie that I can easily watch once every probably five years and be very satisfied with my viewing of it. Yeah. And I think the fun thing about this franchise, too, is usually when you watch one, you got to watch, like, the next two. Right? Oh, yeah. I'm totally ready to watch number two. <laughs> right. Number two. <laughs> well, let's preview next week. We're going to be back with an all-new episode, and we're going to be in 1987. All things... The Lost Boys, the teaser trailer on Monday. JD, let's tease it real quick. What do you look forward to most when we discuss The Lost Boys? Kind of right now, the music. Thou shall not fall. I'm super excited yeah. about the music and then that really creepy scene with on the train tracks. Yeah, I love that scene. What yeah, about you? What, what, what are you looking forward to? I'm looking forward to uh, Death by Stereo. The ending of the movie is fantastic, um, but I'm interested in, I've never like sat down and watched it and taken notes. So I feel like with Back to the Future, I picked up on so many little things. So I look forward to finally seeing all those little things in Lost Boys that I've never noticed. Yeah, and for what it's worth, audience, uh, props to you, Kyle, because Kyle does sit down and he watches the movie with the remote control in his hand. He, push, he pushes pause, he notates what he sees, what he thinks, and what he interprets from it. Um, by no means does Kyle just read off of the Wikipedia page. Like I'm, I'm looking at the computer screen right now. There's 35 <laughs> pages of notes that Kyle has prepared just to discuss Back to the Future. So, you yeah. know, props and thank you to you. And you know they're legit because I mean, how many spelling errors do I have on this? Oh, it's, thing? it's ridiculous. <laughs> but I mean, the writer in me is just spinning and losing it. Like I, I don't know how I've I've been able to just sit here and not like reach over and be like, okay, let me just change this. This is written wrong. But no, it's. It's great. Awesome. Well, we want to thank you guys for hitting the download button. We want to thank you guys for the first 50 episodes. Uh, I think we got another 50 more in us, JD. What do you think? Oh, absolutely. We have to at least get to Back to the Future number two and then number three. So we've got at least 100 episodes left in us. Yeah, I agree. So Back to the Future 2 will drop on episode 100. But in the meantime and in between time, check out our archives. We've got a lot of fun stuff in there, a lot of different genres. Again, we'll be back on Monday with The Lost Boys and then a full episode later in the week. 
And then, uh, as always, follow us on Twitter, Instagram. Everything is at Back in Time Pod. I'm at Kautry29. JD's at Unjust Justin. You can subscribe for free on Apple Podcast, Google Play, YouTube. Make sure you leave us a five star review. But for now, it's time to climb back into the DeLorean, punch in today's date, and return back the present day. We'll talk to you on Monday. See ya. Kyle, I know you want to do the outro, but by all means, great Scott.